Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today's lesson is the 20th in this ongoing series found in 2 Timothy. And today we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. If you have been following this series, you know that as we enter the third chapter, we find Timothy being taught by the Apostle Paul, who was taught by God, and that the church was beginning even then and now is a major site throughout America and around the world. And Timothy is learning that apostasy was going to, and has, brought down the greatness of most of these churches worldwide. So in these verses, we find what apostasy is and what it does to our understanding of what God wanted the church and those who are part of the church, both leadership and the population, should be aiming at in their Christian walk. This lesson continues with that information. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning in the LaVorne Hall located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Over 150 people attend each week and anxiously await the teaching of our longtime teacher from the Scriptures. Doug Brady carefully studies and prays through these lessons to bring the correct understanding to those of us who listen. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m., and we welcome visitors to come and be part of this teaching. Well, I do see that Doug is at the podium, ready to begin this lesson, so let's open our Bible to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, as we begin. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Now, what you're going to see is the apostasy has been dealt with in depth from 2 Timothy 3.1 to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.9. And now he's going to talk to us. What do you do? How do you respond? And it's going to be in two parts. The first part is basically follow me. The second part is pick up the sword. Those are the two things that we are going to see. I've been waiting this entire study to get to the end of chapter 3 and, and talk about 3, 16, and 17. But we're not there yet, and I have to hold back. There's so many things I want to share with you. But we're going to start in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 11. Now, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, uh, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. The Lord rescued me. Now, 
We're going to be breaking this down. Why does he have this list? What kind of list is it? What's going through? But the most important word, I think, to start with is this word, follow. Now, you follow. If you look at this word in the Greek, it's the word parakolotheo. Parakolotheo. And it means, it started out meaning follow to follow after, like you followed after a leader. It, mean, it came also to mean to examine thoroughly or to investigate. Let me give you a perfect example of how this word is used sometimes in the New Testament. If you look in your Bibles, in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Now, who's writing that? Luke. Was Luke a disciple? Was he a Jew? No. Greek. One of, one of one to two books in the, in the Bible that were not written by a Hebrew. We don't know. I think Luke was not. He's normally spoken of as, as a Greek. Could it be that we don't historically know for certain? Uh, well, what book do we know for certain was written by a non-Jew? Job. Yeah. There were no Jews in Job's time. So, but going forward now, I want you to think about this and consider this and how important it is to understand. He came in and he had access to Peter and Paul and John and all these other people, even probably Mary. And he would ask all of these questions. In fact, he had to have access to Mary because he wrote more about Jesus' gestation period than any other writer in the whole Bible. And also about John. And being a doctor, he was interested in those kind of things. This word, having investigated, is the same word we're looking at, kalutheo. It's the same word. That is what he's saying now. So this word has two meanings, and both of them are being used here in this passage. One meaning is to examine carefully, to investigate. And the second one is to follow after. That was the initial meaning of this word. What is Paul's message to Timothy in this respect? He's saying, I want you to follow after me. I want you to be an imitator of me. Is it really that strong? Well, yes. You look in 1 Corinthians 4.16. Paul says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. You see, Timothy was with Paul from 49 A.D. to 67 A.D. When he was, before he was killed. The only persons with a better example to follow maybe were the 11 disciples. So both Timothy and ourselves are instructed to investigate and to follow. Now I want you to think about that a second. I can tell you that I would not stand up here and say, well, you need to be imitators of me. Is there anyone in here who would be old enough to say, well, everybody should be imitators of me because I know exactly what, and I'm just the kind of godly man you ought to follow or godly woman you ought to I don't think there's anybody here. 
if anybody would stand up and say that i imagine it'd be some people in our class who started a massive investigation to show you no you're not chris uh when you were raising your sons did you tell them you need to be imitators of me as to how i grew up <laughs> yeah <laughs> i didn't do that either only the only value in it we kind of knew where to go to head them off before they got to the pass if you know what I mean. But the fact is, this is what he's saying to do, imitator. Now, the first three things he's going to tell us to imitate are basically actions. You're going to see that in a second. But before we get there, let's look at this list again. It started by my. There is no question here that he is saying, don't be imitators of anybody else. The imitators of me. These are my things. Now, you can find another passage that says, where Paul says, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. And that's, of course, what he's doing. But he's conveying how to do that. You watched my life. You, you can't watch Jesus' life. And, you know, did Timothy have a complete book here like we had? No, most of his life, he only had the first part, the Old Testament. He didn't have any of the rest. It's kind of hard to run a church without having the New Testament. So he had to be imitators of Paul. Now, there's one thing that you don't see in any of the translations that you probably have in front of you, is that each of these words, all nine of them, teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecution, sufferings, all start or have the definite article in front of them. The. Now, there's two things here that that conveys. One, it's a designated teachings. Not just any teachings, but the teachings of Jesus Christ and what Paul is sharing. Now, did Paul have the authority to do that? Yes, he had the gift of apostleship. He could speak God's word extemporaneously and to write it under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Also, though, with the, it's one that you know. You know what I'm saying? You can say, if I, most people here, if I would say, well, have you heard about the Cowboys? You would know I'm talking about an athletic team from Dallas that is supposed to be, you know, good all the time. And you notice I said supposed to be. So that definite article follows each one. So the first one is what? Teaching. You see, you can't say in English, my, the teaching. So they left out the in every, uh, with every one. But if you look in the Greek, you'll see it. Well, we talked about this earlier in the book, his teaching. If you look at 2 Timothy 2.2, it says, the things which you have heard from me. Now, Paul is talking to Timothy, so it's the things that I, Paul, have taught to you, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, you look at that verse. At first, you know, certainly he's talking about teaching until you get to the end. But he is. He's saying, the things I taught you, Timothy, you teach to other men. But not just everybody, but to faithful men. Men you can entrust it to so that they will teach others also. What is he saying? I don't want you to teach a dead end. 
and pour your life into a dead end. I want you to teach somebody who will share it, transfer it. I like to call it transferable concepts. He says, I want you to teach them so they can transfer it to others, so they can transfer it to others. You start to see what, what Paul is doing here as he does this. I'm not saying you shouldn't share the gospel with everyone, but let's say you, did Jesus really teach his ministry and his thing to everyone? No. He took 11. He knew the, the Judas, what he was going to do. And he had him along so that the prophecy could be fulfilled. But he built into those 11 with the idea, let's say those 11 built in, and I can do numbers. And James was killed early, so I can do numbers like 10 easier. If you have 10, and each of those 10 then teach to a faithful man another 10, now how many do you have? A hundred. But then those ten all teach to another. You're getting close to a thousand. And then ten thousand and a hundred thousand. See, I can work tens real easy. But the fact is, that's the plan. And that's what he wants. So the first thing he's saying is, is this teaching. That's what's important. Paul had written 13 books, if you count 2 Timothy, the one Timothy's reading when he reads this. And his teaching, he considers to be foundational. Foundational. So, the first thing on this list is teaching, and then the next is what? Conduct. How does that fit together? It's really very simple. You haven't taught properly if there's not a conduct resulting from it. Conduct comes from teaching, from understanding. If you look at the scripture, it teaches lots of times. If you look at it, you acquire knowledge. And then when you apply that knowledge to the situation, you develop wisdom. Wisdom doesn't come first, knowledge comes first. But then, wisdom comes first. If knowledge doesn't turn into wisdom, what value is it? Reminds me a lot of professors that I used to know. But, uh, hey, Doug, you might, on that topic, our school systems are not teaching conduct to our young people, therefore we have this problem. No, we're not. Well, I disagree with you. They are teaching conduct. They're teaching you how to put a condom on a banana. They're, and that was a long time ago. They're now teaching you conduct that is reprehensible to God unfortunately. But they're not teaching the right conduct like we used to have in our schools. And this conduct, this word conduct, agage, means a life led or a way of course of living. And I don't want you to think that I don't think Bible knowledge is important and imperative. I do. It's wonderful. But such knowledge should never be an end in and of itself. It's got to affect a way we're living. And understanding that teaching or learning knowledge is the easier part of these first two admin, admonitions. Conduct is much more difficult. Paul did not just teach the word of his God, but actively modeled it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, listen to how he does that. He says to the church at Thessalonica, For you recall, brethren, 
our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see, Paul was all about application of his teaching so that it results in the correct kind of conduct. Now, it's interesting. I run across this week as I was thinking through and studying this on a change that I don't like. Change, you know, seems... Uh, some changes seem so innocent to start with. You know, churches, religious schools, they have set up mentoring programs to mentor people. What they've done is they decide they want to change the word. They don't like the word anymore that God used, which was discipling. Discipling is what he calls us to do, not to mentor, but to disciple. You know, it's the same thing, Doug. You're just, uh, you know, making a mountain out of a mole here. That's how apostasy starts with all this. Now, moving on. What is the effect of learning God's truth but not living it? What is the effect that that happens? Well, I want to give you two examples. The first one is a guy you should be familiar with. His name is David. We know him for slaying giants. We know him for becoming king. We also know him for serious, serious sin. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, when Nathan was confronting David on the sin, he said this, However, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also is born, you shall surely die. Why did that, one of the reasons that child had to die was to show those who were blaspheming that God deals even with his people if they sin like that. And you see, you gave them occasion because of your conduct to blaspheme my name. If you look in Romans chapter 2, verse 23, Paul is saying, you who boast in the law, that is, the Pharisees or the legalists, you who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's quoting there from 2 Samuel what Nathan said to David, and this is saying to these Judaizers and those who are legalists, as opposed to teaching God's grace, just as it is written. For Paul, it's not doctrine that's critical, but conduct driven by doctrine. Now, what's the next word in his list that follows after this in this uh, tripartite? Purpose. What he's going to say is that if you follow my teaching and you allow it to instruct your conduct and to create your conduct, you will know what your purpose is. Now, in our churches today, how many people know really what their purpose is? You can say generally, okay, yeah, I'm to glorify God and this and that. What is the purpose that God has for you? To make disciples of Jesus. 
many of us will know specifically. I want you to look at this word, purpose, prothesis. It's a setting forth of a thing or a placing it in a view. In other words, it's kind of like a goal that you put up, kind of like this. My friend Eddie gave me a little block, and I put it at the front of my desk, and all of a sudden people now, now what is that saying in there? But it says, maybe today. Well, maybe today what? Is the judge going to give us an order? Not that judge. Maybe today my Lord's coming back for me. And do you know for certain that if he comes back for me, he's taking you with me. That is able to do. But it's a purpose. We have a purpose. What is your purpose? Paul clearly knew his purpose. In fact, the way he identified it was in Philippians 121 where he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want you to think about this in just a second. Many in the millennial generation and downward, those who followed after him, they seem to have no purpose in their lives at all. They wander about searching here and there, trying to find some kind of meaning or purpose, but never finding it. Why is that? Well, number one, in their schooling where they taught the teachings of God at all, no, forgot, God's been kicked out. Well, what if there's no one in their life to model God's truth for them, what are they taught? Well, they're taught that they're a biological accident of an evolutionary process as opposed to the design of a loving and all uh, mighty God who wants to have a relationship with them. That's why they have no purpose. That's why life has no meaning to them. They never had a chance to learn that the way they were supposed to. Supposed to be taught to them in their families, and their families failed. Supposed to be taught to them in the churches, and they never would attend. Supposed to be taught to them in their schools, and never had a chance. Paul's response to understanding his purpose can be found, I think, in 1 Corinthians 9.16, where it says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now you look at that. What is he saying? He is under compulsion now. I belong to God and I've got to do this. But woe is me if I don't do it. My life will have no purpose. It will fall away. And we need to see that. That's this concept. I think the one in the Old Testament that stands out to me the most in that regard is a fellow by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Look in Jeremiah chapter 20, starting in verse 8, where he says, For each time I speak, I cry aloud, I proclaim violence and destruction, because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. And what is he saying to start with? They're mistreating me and abusing me for it. The high priest had him bound to the stocks and personally beat him. And they cast him in, in a pit and let him stay there for several days. They almost killed Jeremiah. And you know what Jeremiah's initial response was? I can't take this anymore. I need to stop making these proclamations. And he did. But then something happened. 
But if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I can't endure it. That's an interesting thing, is it not? So, we've seen the first three. Teaching, conduct, and purpose. Those are actions or involve uh, choices. Now we're going to see three that have to do with character. Paul says, you should have this character, just like me. Now, you would say, no, wait a second, Paul. I just can't flip a switch and say, okay, I now have this character, these character traits that, that, that you're talking about. I just have them. Yes, you can. Because it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit. Will the Holy Spirit, if He's allowed to control you, put these kind of character traits in you? Well, what kind of character trait? Well, let's look. He lists them in Galatians chapter 5. Let's look at those starting in verse 22. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now it's interesting. I want you to see this. Paul's going to take three, but he's going to go backwards. He's going to start with faithfulness, and then he's going to claim patience, and then he's going to claim love. So let's look first at the first thing he says, faith or faithfulness. This is this Greek word, pistis. And pistis means fidelity, faithfulness, the character of one who can be relied on. This is key to being the kind of man or woman who's going to be used by God in the purpose he has for you. Let's take the example of Jesus for just a second. If anyone was treated more poorly to try and dissuade them from doing what God wanted them to do, it would be Jesus. You know, Satan took him one-on-one -on -one in the wilderness. He turned everybody against him from time to time. Look what Peter, who was there when these things happened, in 1 Peter 2.23. And while Jesus was being reviled, he did not revile in return. Now, can you think about this a second? If I was up on that cross, and I was the Son of God, everybody, of course, knows I'm not. But if I was, and they're saying, oh, well, you saved everybody else, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you bring, if you're really the Son of God, bring yourself down from there. Well, sir, I can't do that right now. I have a job to do up here. But I've got a spot waiting for you, and it's called hell. I would want to say things like that. I would want to retort back. And if he had done it, he could probably do it a whole lot better than I could. But he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. How did he make it through? Faith. Entrusting himself. You look a little farther in that letter of 1 Peter, and he's going to turn it around because he gives us the same admonition. In 1 Peter 4.19, it says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator doing what is right. You see that word, entrust? That's the key. But the fact is... We have to learn to entrust ourselves. Like I've said before, the hand of Almighty God has placed you in that palm of His hand. 
How can anything happen to you that he doesn't allow when you're in his hand? Well, can you jump out of his hand? No. You will always be in his hand. He may allow something to get through to you that is going to make you stronger. I have seen things in my life that I didn't like at all happen to me. Some of you were there when I went through them. But the fact is, he can close that hand and block it whenever he wants to. And let something in when he knows it's going to make me stronger because he's going to allow trials and testings to come my way. But that's why when that comes, let me ask you, when everything's going good, is that when you really learn to trust God? It's when adversity comes that you learn to trust God and that he is faithful to his children. That's something we have to learn. Now, what's the next word that we come up with? Patience. Patience, this word in Greek means patience or endurance or consistency. This attribute of our Lord and that Paul models for us is very hard in contemporary America. Everything is instant gratification in our nation. You know, you don't have to look everything. I have in my library, for example, the Theological Dictionary of, of the New Testament, all in Greek, and it's like 12 volumes. Bill Grubbs gave it to me, and it's up there at the very top. I don't really pull those books down anymore. Why? All I have to do is push a few buttons, and I've got the answer. I don't have to spend the time to, to look it up. If I had to now, it'd probably take me 30 minutes or so. But I push a button in my computer or my iPad or my phone and I get it. I have instantaneous communications with anybody in the world. I can call, push a few numbers in my phone and talk to Barrett over in South Korea. I can, I can do that. I have, there are my, in my kitchen, there are microwaves and there's a microwave and an induction cooktop. I can take a pot of water and I can put it on an induction cook pot and in 60 to 90 seconds is it a rapid boil. Instantaneous. That's the way we, we, our nation is all about. Instantaneous gratification. What the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us is that many times God wants for us delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. That's why God doesn't answer our prayers immediately many times. He wants us to keep praying. He wants us to be patient and to endure and to wait on Him. You see, if He gave us immediate answers to every prayer we make, we wouldn't be able to handle it. Many times we wouldn't learn patience. Like I, think our, I think our military when I think of patience because they're trained to wait, wait for orders. So on a Patience is important when you have a chain of command. You can't say, well, I need to act. I need to act right now. No, you wait for the chain of command. Many times, I think God withholds from us until we reach the necessary spiritual maturity level in order to handle it. I can think of several examples of this. My youngest son, Brooks, thought, well, if Barrett can drive a car, I ought to be able to drive a car. No, that's not the way it works. I remember 
a perfect illustration of this in my life. I remember God bringing me a case when I wasn't, I was probably about a third of the way along in my legal career. And it was a wonderful case in that it paid not only an hourly rate, but it paid a contingent fee. And I prayed over that case and I prayed over that case because if I was to win, I could recover something like, for me, $300 million. But God knew that if I won that case, it would ruin me. And he said, no, you have not reached the level of spiritual maturity. And in fact, I probably have it up to now. But the fact is that God knows that and he protects me. You know, I can say, well, God, I can handle the 300 million. I know Brooks can't handle the car and probably get hurt. But I, no, you can't. God makes that determination. And he knows what's best for you. And like a parent, he does not want to hurt his children. And so he says, you have to learn to wait. Patience is built on what? Trust, which is faith. You see how faith was the first one he chose? And then patience, because patience involves trusting God. I'll wait, because that's gonna, what it's going to take to trust him. Now, what's the third? The third is love. We know this word, agape, affection, love. In the Bible, this Greek word is used to describe an unconditional love. Love that expects and demands nothing in return. But let me give you some examples here. Uh, if Julie and I were out to dinner and she says, would you like a, a third of my entree to eat? And I would say, yeah, I will have that. And she cuts it off and gives it to me. And then she may a little later say, could I have like a quarter of yours? No, it's mine. You see, that's not that kind of love. Love shares. Love gives, it doesn't demand. Let me give you another example. Say there's a parent or grandparent or an aunt or uncle who say, you know, it's your birthday. I want you to know that I love you and I'm giving you this gift. And then, look, you know, you're not acting right. I'm taking that gift back. No, that's not love. Love doesn't expect, it doesn't remain. All it is about is giving. It's a type of love that is completely unselfish. Now, if you want to learn about this love and this attribute, you can just look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it contains all of a complete description of this kind of love. But maybe sometime the best way to see this kind of love is what it's not compared to what it is. To me, the kind of love that the world teaches is really called lust. And we think of lust only in a sexual level. No, it's not. Lust covers all areas, whether it's financial, popularity, uh, uh, power. It's all the same. You see, lust can't wait to get, while love can't wait to give. And that's maybe one of the keyest distinctions. Now, this is a little side part. I already shared this 
with my sister-in-law because when I found it, I got really excited to understand something I never understood because at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, now abides these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, how can that be? I wouldn't be saved if I didn't have faith. And hope is what keeps me going. If I don't have hope, what's a life like without hope? Why can you just say love is the greatest? You think about this. Chris, when the Lord comes back to get you and take you home along with the rest of us, are you going to really need faith anymore? Because you're going to be seeing Him eye to eye. Everything, you have a question, you just ask and He's going to answer. You don't need faith anymore, do you? Are you going to need hope anymore? No, you're living the object of your hope then, right? But will you, from eternity on, have love between you and your Lord? Amen. Do you see that? Love lasts for eternity. That's why love is great, in my opinion, as I looked at this and studied it through. Does also, yes. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave us our Savior. And it's everlasting. The results of that is everlasting. It's our faith, but it's His love. Now, Paul's going to switch from the main to the main theme of this letter now and this list. Perseverance. Perseverance. It's all about spiritual perseverance with this letter to Timothy. And that's where, where he is. And I want you to see that. That's the next thing that he had preached. And it's really by itself. There's not no longer groups of three. This is by itself, and this perseverance means steadfastness or endurance. The word is hupomone, hupomone in the Greek. And we should understand this word can, that would convey the idea that one has the capacity to bear up under difficult circumstances. He relates this attribute, spiritual perseverance, to the previous six. The teaching the conduct and the purpose understanding on one side and these three character traits, those six will grant you spiritual perseverance. It will provide the foundation for that. He's going to give us an example. Let's look in Acts 14 about Paul. When those who were followers of the law, the Jews, came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and got out of there as fast as he could. No, that's not what it says, is it? And he got up and entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. You know, I learned that lesson a long time ago when I was in elementary school and uh, I was playing football and this guy from, I can't remember the name of the other school now, but he blindsided me play and I just wiped me out and I'm laying there and I'm doing everything I can not to cry. And I didn't, but I, you know, it, I sure wanted to. And uh, the coach came out and he said to me, Doug, Everybody gets knocked down. It's how you get up that counts. 
and I was a little bit of a slow learner in those days, and I let him help me up, and then we're starting to walk back, and then I stopped. I said, and I got it. I'm not going out, Coach. He smiled at me, and he said, okay. Because he knew I just learned an important lesson. That lesson was taught long ago by Paul. They thought he was dead, and they just dragged him out when he appeared to be dead and left him outside the city. God raised him up, and what's the first thing he did? I'm going right back in there. Mark? Do you think he was dead momentarily? I mean, why would they not check out the body to see if he was deceased? Well, I think, I think they just missed it. Because I don't think it says supposing him to be dead. So I'm going to say he was. And I think if he was dead and he was raised from the dead on this event, Paul would have talked about that he talked about everything else it's a good question what would you do if you found yourself in that situation you think about that this word hupomone completely describes what he did Jesus had this same spiritual perseverance in Hebrews 12 2 where it's talking about fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down the right hand of the throne of God. Endured the cross, hupomone. Spiritually endured. That's what he would do. Now, I have to admit, I'm sitting here, as I'm studying this, you know, Lord, I really want this spiritual endurance. I want to be able to get back up and go back into the city. And he says, Doug, you memorized the verse that told you how to do this, the passage. Do I have to review it with you again? And of course, you know what I said. Yeah, let's do it just in case, so I make sure. And uh, Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of all things, the creators of the end of the earth, does not grow weary, become weary or tired, and his understanding is inscrutable. Meaning, you can't understand his understanding, but he understands yours. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Now, notice something there. What this word power here is really talking about is energy or endurance. If you have the power to run, but how far can you run? After a while, if you just keep running, eventually, now, Jerry, who rides in the hotter than hunt hell, you know, he could go a lot farther than me. But however far I could go, that's the amount of power or energy I've got. And then I run out, I can't go any farther. He says, no, what I will do, if you do this, is I will add power to your supply so that you can go farther and farther, and in fact, as far as you need to go. That's the concept here that I want you to see. So, he gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. And they will mount up with wings like eagles. And they will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. Now, what is the key word there in that passage? Wait. You mean patience? 
Oh, yeah. Kind of ties in, doesn't it? That's what he's talking about. Look at this again from a New Testament perspective in James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, that is, situations in which you need spiritual endurance, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now you stop there. What's the key there? Your faith, entrusting yourself to a faithful creator. You see how it ties in now? And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God wants for us. And we need to come to see that. Now, the final two things that we take together is a pair now. Persecutions and sufferings. Now, remember, it's the persecutions and the sufferings. Now, if I'm getting someone, if I'm going to have the gall to say, be imitators of me. If I tell them about persecutions and sufferings, what might they say? I don't want that. I'll maybe imitators in the good parts, the, the victories, but not the, the defeats. Of course, for Paul, he doesn't view those as defeats, does he? But he's going to bring it out. Does he not take you back to Acts 14, as happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra? Persecutions I endured, and out of which the Lord rescued me? Look at that for just a second, and I want you to see. Persecutions is diagmos. Sufferings is pathema. That, that which one suffers or has suffered. Modeling the behavior of a godly man or woman in prosperity is easy. Modeling the behavior in the midst of adversity is quite another. In my family, there was a perfect example of this. My sister and brother-in-law had built up in Fairview their dream home. And it was an unbelievable home. And you look at it, and May Susan was sitting in there, and all of a sudden, all of the, there was a little brainstorm going on, and all of a sudden, all the light bulbs popped. And she ran out, and she saw the fire at the top of the house where the lightning had struck. And she called the fire department immediately and then called David. Well, the long and the short of it is they're standing out on the curb, Susan, David, his son, Matt, and his wife, Randy. And behind them are seven fire trucks from the area. Are they fighting the fire? No. You see, they could be struck by lightning. So they have to sit there and watch their house burn down. And then, of course, at the end, when there's no more storm, then they're going to water everything down and destroy everything else that's left. <laughs> Matt, his son, who is a very godly man, turned to his father, David, and he said, you know, Dad, you let everybody in this community know that you are a born-again believer and that you are God's man. They are going to be watching you very carefully now to see how you react. How does God react? How does God's man react when he sees his dreams burned to the ground? That's what Paul is saying here. How are we going to react when the persecutions react like me, he says? Jeez, react like you? Well, in 2 Corinthians 11, Starting in the last part of verse 23, it says, I more so in far more labors, 
four more imprisonments, beaten times without end, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten, Romans, with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times uh, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the open ocean or the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. That is why Paul had such influence in men such as Timothy, Titus, Luke, John, Mark, and Barnabas because they saw him in adversity and what he does. People, many times, they want to see someone's actions or behavior if they match their rhetoric and they see him in times of adversity. Now, consider Timothy's prior involvement in this that's recorded in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3. And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that you would not be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer afflictions, and so it came to pass, as you know. Or let's go back to 2 Corinthians 1.6. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective to the patient enduring. There's that word enduring again. Patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So what did Paul say at the end of this letter to 2 Corinthians? He said, therefore, I am well content. Well content. Well content with what? With sufferings with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties. For for Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. And then there is hope that resides in Paul, hope that arises from his sufferings. Wait a second. His sufferings give him hope? That doesn't make sense. Was he hoping for more sufferings? Now, I want you to look at this, because this is something to give you an understanding of something that I didn't understand completely before. First, in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is he saying? The glory that's coming doesn't compare to these measly sufferings I'm going through now. You say, measly? Yes, in Paul's mind, measly. Look at something Jesus said. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now let's focus on that, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does everyone who's a believer get into heaven? Is there any question in your mind about that? Everybody who's a believer? No. Of course they do. 
But is everybody a believer, someone who suffered sufferings or persecutions? But those who suffer persecutions, there's not just heaven. They're going to participate in the kingdom. They're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. There's a reward for those who are persecuted. Do you see that? That's what that Jesus was saying then. It's just not you get into the kingdom of heaven. No, you're going to be a part of the kingdom if you are persecuted. Now, if you're persecuted for the sake of sin, no. But if you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, then yes. Paul called on Timothy to be prepared to surrender many of the comforts he could have and enjoy as a pastor of a major important church. Ephesus at that time was a major. He called on him to be prepared to stand strong, and that means you may suffer. Paul explains that we can learn how to deal with those sacrifices by following his example. I believe there's going to come a time fairly soon for most of us in our lifetimes where we're going to have to make those kind of sacrifices. And we're going to have to suffer. And we're going to need to be aware of Paul's example. You see, a true leader is one who sets the example for, her, for his followers. Is Paul asking any of his followers, including you, to do anything that he wouldn't do himself? No, he's not. A real leader. Did Jesus ask us to do anything that he didn't do himself? No. Notice the second thing here with Paul. God did not deliver him from these persecutions, did he? And the sufferings that came on him. But he went through them with him. Paul went through the sufferings with Jesus Christ. And then God could use those events in Paul's life to be examples for his other children. Do you remember what he said to Peter right before Jesus was going to be arrested? Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. Did he say, and I prayed to the Father that he not be allowed to? No. no. He said, I prayed that when you return, you'll be able to use that to strengthen your brothers. That's what he wants for us. Paul has done that. We, you know, we're living in a bubble of history in America where there's no real persecution for our Christianity. It is coming, you domestic terrorists out there. Speaking in an aggressive tone right now. I hope you recognize that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we can spend together today. And I thank you for preserving this wonderful book for us. Father, teaching and understanding your word is great. Help us to realize that conduct, purpose are key. The attributes that give us the power to do that are so important for us to learn. And help us to realize that if persecution and suffering comes, all we have to do is reach out and hold your hand and you will take us through it. It's not us that's not holding the hand. I mean, it's not you that's not being willing to hold our hands. It's us who many times don't take your hand when you extend it. Help us to realize how much you love us and that you will take us through us just like you did, Paul. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.